I remember the first time I heard that song on the radio, the sailor. I actually stopped the car. I want to hear this. Redemption. How sweet. All right. I got to get to preaching here. Strange title here. I'll try to explain it as we move on here. Flexitarianism. We are continuing on in a series in Revelation, uh, this section called Correspondence from the King, a letter to different churches, seven different churches. And today we're going to look at the church in Pergamum. And so turn with me to Revelation chapter 2, verses 12 through 17, and ask when you find Revelation two twelve, if you will stand in our God's honor as I read from his words. To the angel of the church in Pergamum write, These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. I know where you live, where Satan has his throne, yet you remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Repent, therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. I will also give him a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to him who receives it. Let's pray. Father, uh, we're here to hear from you, Lord. And we have. We've been reminded of with you, it's redeemed, Lord. It's unfulfilled, unknown, broken. You are the one who mends the brokenhearted. You are the one who gives the new start, the new chance, the new life, the new name, the new hope. And Father, as we look at this church, I just ask that your Holy Spirit would continue to move in this time allotted for you. Because... We're weak, and we need the strong one to minister to us. And so, Holy Spirit, we continue to invite you to be here. Father, I don't want to block you. I don't want to. I don't. I don't want to get in your way. So we pray that you might continue to speak. In Christ's name, we pray. Amen. This is the time of year, everybody. Well, they come up with these big plans, and many times it involves this, right? And uh, I read about one lady. She was bragging about the fact she was a strict vegetarian. Five years. She said, but the key was that every once in a while she just had to cheat. Because she loves sausage. And then the article went on to talk about where there is a whole industry toward vegetarians, but not just vegetarians, 
but to those who want a little taste of, of meat to mix in there. Matter of fact, in the article, this uh, company said, uh, represent this company said, well, you know, every once in a while, you just got to throw a happy chicken in there to make it work out. Now, how can you tell a chicken's happy? They don't have lips, so you can't see them smile and, and laugh. But the point is that instead of total commitment, there has to be a little bit of a mixture in there of, of backsliding or, or, or moving back to be flexible. Matter of fact, this whole industry, there's a word that was coined called flexertarian. To be flexible. Now, what would it be like within the church? Say we had a denomination and we could just call it flexitarianism. You have Catholicism and Presbyterianism and we can go through the different denominations. But we have flexitarianism. What would such a church look like? Well, here... Here are some of the advertisements, and sadly, uh, maybe they're not so far-fetched. There's a fire, no fire, there is no fire and brimstone here, no Bible thumping, just practical, witty messages. Services at our church have an informal feeling. You won't hear people threatened with hell or referred to as sinners. The goal is to make you feel welcome. Not drive you away. The sermons are relevant. Upbeat. And best of all, short. I'm sorry. Okay. uh, You won't hear a lot of preaching about sin. Preaching here doesn't sound like preaching. It's sophisticated and friendly talk. The pastor preaches a salvation message. But the idea is not so much being saved from hell. But saved from meaninglessness. It it is a place where the sinner and the saint are both comfortable. Are both able to be together. But it's also a place where the word of God is decentralized. And the gospel is diluted. And hope is not preached. Imagine advertisements in our papers or on TV or on the radio, describing a church in this way. Come prepared to worship the living and true Lord. Come prepared to study the Scriptures and discover the deep truths of God. Come prepared to confess your sins and renew your walk to a walk of integrity. You see, we're not here just to come to feel comfortable, although I want everybody here to be welcome. I want us to to certainly feel like This is our home in a sense. But it's much more than that. We're here to hear from God. It's it's not about coming just so that, you know, hey, dress as you like. Listen to, you know, what you like. All that stuff. It's about an encounter with the living God. Here's what Jesus said in Matthew 4.17. This is from the Amplified Bible. He says, from that time on... Jesus began to preach, crying out, repent. That is, change your mind for the better. Heartily amend your ways with abhorrence of your past sins. For the kingdom of God is at hand. 
You see, the message is, we need to be made new. We got an issue. We got a problem. Although we are all made in the image of God, we have been tainted or distorted by sin. Sin has it's broken us. And we need to be restored. We need to be mended by the power of God. And in a church where the message of the cross and the message of forgiveness and the message of resurrection are absent, it's not really a church. It's just a social club. Just a place to gather, not a place to be changed by the gospel. I heard a joke. A preacher, a doctor, and a lawyer went hunting together. Saw a deer. They got excited. They all fired at the same time, and they all claimed, I shot the buck. So the doctor said, let me investigate so I can be able to tell you without question who really got the buck. So he went, he investigated, he came back, he said, it was definitely the preacher. Well, the lawyer argued, what is your case? How do you know beyond a doubt that it was the preacher who shot the buck? He said, because the bullet went in one ear and out the other ear. How tragic when from the pulpit it's not worth hearing. There's not a a message of hope and a message of life. That brings us to our letter here in Revelation chapter 2. Starting at verse 12, we see that this is addressed to the church in Pergamum. These are the words of him who has the sharp, double-edged sword. In this day in the Roman Empire, Roman governors, there were some governors who had the power of the sword. And what that meant is that at any moment they had the power to have you executed. They could look at you and say, Lisa, you're gone. Now, with this, that's not Todd, that's, that's Roman governor. Okay, and then... What he is saying here, he says, these Roman governors, yes, they have a power and they have an authority of a sword. But the Lord Jesus Christ, he has a double-edged sword. He is the one who really is in control. He is the one who really has the authority. He is the one who truly has the power. And as he goes through this letter, first I want you to notice the commendation by Christ of the church. Here in verse 13. It says, I know where you live. Where Satan has his throne. He knows the place. He knows what Pergamum was like. There are a couple of ideas of this throne. What what, Satan's throne. Uh, One idea back in 1868. The Berlin Museum excavated Pergamum. And they found this huge statue of the god Zeus. And the place, the altar uh, of that place of worship could be seen 15 miles away. It's in the shape of a horseshoe. And uh, there's a great library there. They had over 200,000 parchments, ancient books. There was a court that stood 40 feet high. 
There was a podium of the altar that stood 18 feet high. There was a base of the structure 448 feet long. And there was a carving of a battle between the gods and the giants. And this altar looked like a throne. And so some say this is what it refers to. To Satan's throne. There are others that say, well, this is talking about a prominent God. The God Asclepius. The God of healing. The God who was worshipped in the ancient hospitals. People flocked to him for his healing power as he was able to save those who were tragically ill. And the symbol for this God was a pole with serpents wound around the pole. A symbol still used in medical circles today, throughout the temple of this God, they would put non-poisonous snakes to which people would walk through with the idea that if one of these non-poisonous snakes touched them, they would be healed. It was a place to find healing. I guess I just stayed sick. I don't like snakes. I'm kind of like a Indiana Jones, you know. Well, I, I, that's really a bad comparison. I'm nothing like Indiana Jones. But I am afraid of snakes. we got that in common. Uh, isn't it interesting, though, in this case as he's speaking, he, he said, here is, a, here is a God, a God of healing, a God who is referred to as a Savior from sickness, and he's a serpent. Now, that brought to mind the people of God, the identity of this God, as a serpent, as a counterfeit. He says, I know where you live. I know that this is a place that worships the God, the serpent. I know as day by day as you go through your schedule, as you struggle, you stayed faithful to me in this place. Notice what he says as he goes on in his words. You remain true to my name. You did not renounce your faith in me. Even in the days of Antipas, my faithful servant, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. He said, even though there was all this pressure to say that this God of the serpent was the true God or this place of the throne. He said, you stay true to me. As it says in Acts 4.12, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to men by which one must be saved. He said, you stay true to my name. You didn't renounce my name. In other words, they stay true to the essence of the gospel, which is it only, salvation is only found in Jesus Christ. It's, it's only found in His perfect work. Titus 2.11 and 12, for the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men it teaches us to say no to ungodliness and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Hey, they, they were faithful there. But it doesn't stop with a commendation. There's a criticism. Look here in verses 14 and 15. Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. You have people there who hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin by eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. 
Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. If you go back to Numbers 22 through 24, you see the account of which this is referring. Balaam was an Old Testament prophet and he was hired to curse people's enemies so that they would not have the blessing of God in battle. Balak, the king of Moab, decided he would hire this guy, Balaam. And so he hired him to curse the Israelites. Balaam was on his donkey and he was headed to a meeting to do his job, to do his work. He was riding a donkey. You remember the story? There was an angel in the middle of the path and the donkey, well, he stopped. And so Balaam got mad and he took a stick and he smacked the donkey with a stick and and then the donkey spoke. Why are you hitting me? Uh, is that any way to treat the animal that's carried you around all your life, Balaam? Balaam replied, no, but if this thing were a sword, I would just kill you. You'd be dead. Now, the amazing thing to me here is that he talked to the donkey at all. I mean, how many donkeys have you seen other than the one on Shrek? And that was Eddie Murphy. That wasn't a real donkey. That talks. So he carries on this conversation with the donkey. And then, of course, his eyes are opened and he decides he will not follow through and curse the Israelites. But later, although at that time he didn't curse the Israelites, he did find a way to help Balak infiltrate the Israelites. And notice here in the text, it it tells us how that was accomplished. We are told um, that he enticed the Israelites to sin. This is verse 14. By eating food sacrificed to idols and by committing sexual immorality. This is described in Numbers 25. This is the formula that would be used to defeat the Israelites. He couldn't curse them, but he corrupted them. See, they they turned away from following God to following these rituals in, in temples of false gods where there was sexual immorality and there were all these foods that were off limits to the Israelites. He... he He couldn't curse them. He couldn't curse the one that was covered by the name of God. He couldn't curse the nation that was God's nation, God's people, God's light to the Gentiles. But he corrupted them. They turned their hearts away from the living God. And that is still what he does in the church today. You see, he said, what you need is to be a little flexible, Israelites. Time to join the church of the flexitarians. He said, it's time now as we look out among us. The evil one is at work. He says, I can't curse them because they're covered by Jesus, but I can corrupt them. I can take away the influence that they are meant to have that comes through Jesus Christ. You know, it's, it's like, oh, lighten up, guys. Everybody's doing this stuff. You know, you get on Facebook and Find that love that you had years ago and 
in high school and start talking to her. Start talking to him. Who knows? Something might come out of that. Give you that little tingle. Or you, you got this plan maybe to eat lunch with this attractive person. Come on. You know, don't be such a prude. Have a little fun. Let your hair down. Lighten up. You see, the bait of Satan hasn't changed a whole lot. From then until now. One historian said it like this. Sexual purity was the one completely new virtue which Christianity introduced into the ancient world. Wow. Demotheses, who was an ancient historian 250 years before John the Apostle, he wrote these words about the Greek culture. He said, We have harlots for pleasure, concubines for daily cohabitation, and wives for the purpose of having legitimate children, as well as managing our household affairs. Seventy-five years before John mailed the letter to the church at Pergamum, Cicero, the Roman philosopher, who um, wrote about the, politi- uh, the prevailing attitude of his day in regard to sexual behavior, and he was very upset in his writings with those who suggested abstinence before marriage and fidelity during marriage. And here's what he wrote. He said, For the one who thinks men should be forbidden the love of women, he's extremely severe. I am not able to deny the principle that is a virtue, but he is at odds not only with the license of what our own age allows, but also with the customs of our ancestors. When indeed was this not done? When did anyone ever find fault with it? When was such permission denied? When was it that which is now lawful was not lawful? Does that sound familiar? Does that sound really so ancient? Ladies and gentlemen, what is politically correct might very well be biblically corrupt. It's a matter of the heart. In Romans 1, the last verse of Romans chapter 1, where Paul's talking about the Roman culture, he He said, not only do they live apart from the living God and live in ways that are detestable to God, he said, but they applaud those who do. It's it's not enough just to sin. But we live in an age where sin is applauded. Yeah, look at that. Go, buddy. And yet this letter, this letter is not addressed to the world of that day is not a risk to the town of Pergamum. It's addressed to the church in Pergamum. It's addressed to those in the church who would gather for a meeting and say, Jesus is our hope. He is our salvation. He lived a sinless life. He died on a cross. He rose from the grave. But then when they got out of church, they would head to the temple and be just like all the others who chased after the flesh. He said, there's no room for this in the church. Temptation, we're never home free. We live in a world where it's real. We can't just come here and meet in our little holy huddles and feel all good. 
and then leave and forget we were even here during the week. We're to be set aside for Christ. Um, challenged by Christ in Pergamum. Look at uh, Revelation two sixteen. Repent, therefore. You could literally translate this verse. Stop sinning. This is not something to debate. It's not something to table. It's not something to consider. (laughs) It's not something to argue. It's something to do. He he is basically saying here, it's time to stop, to turn from your sin, to quit compromising, to quit commingling truth with error, to go the right direction. Notice the next part of the verse, the challenge. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with a sword of my mouth. Did you notice the change in pronouns there? You and them. But the underlying Hebrew idiom here is that these pronouns are still referring to the same body. This is still being spoken to the church. This is to you who are to be set apart for Christ and to those of you, to them who have left a life of purity in being who you are out of the walls of your gathering, just like you are in the walls of the gathering, this is to you. He says, stop. Stop sinning. Turn from this. Otherwise, I will come to you and I will fight against them. He says, with the sword of my mouth. So what this is, this is a rebuke of lukewarm living. Man, this is talking about being sold out to Christ. This is talking about seeing Him as our Lord. It's talking about that that great uh, verse, Galatians 2.20. Many of you guys know by heart. In the NIV, he he says, um, I am crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in this body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. It means starting out each day and saying, Okay, Lord, I'm fighting temptation. I'm fighting sin. But I'm I'm offering myself to you today. I want to be crucified in Christ today and the resurrected Christ live through me that I may live in victory for you. I love the way Billy Sunday, the evangelist of old, put it. He said, there's not going to be revival until we stop treating sin like a cream puff and treat sin like a rattlesnake. That'll bite us. It's not going to change until the uh, Christian stops feeling sorry on Sunday for what he did on Saturday and then goes back on Monday and does it again. There is a need for repentance. A need to turn. Notice uh, verse 17. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. In other words, uh, listen closely to what Jesus has to say. To him who overcomes, I will give some of the hidden manna. The picture here, remember, as God's people were in the wilderness, He supplied them with manna, with food to nourish them, 
and to strengthen them for the journey. And the picture here is that he will be faithful to supply you with what you need until his return. Until he is on the throne in the place you live. For now we are in a place where his return has not happened. Where his reign is... um, In one sense, he is in control, but there will be a day where it will not be like this. Secondly, the Lord also promised them, look, look at the second part of verse 17. I will also give him a white stone with a new name on it, known only to him who receives it. Give two possibilities here. Actually, commentaries went kind of wild on this, and I got up like six different possibilities One of these was juries of the Roman court. When the jury was making a decision, there was a black rock and a white rock. And they they thought you were guilty. The black rock would go into an urn. If you were innocent, the white rock. And the picture here is, you know, the white rock. You're innocent. You're clean. (laughs) And I love what uh, Romans 8.33 says. Who will bring... Um, any condemnation against those whom Christ, who Christ has just died, who Christ has redeemed, who, who, you know, the victory that Christ brings. And I love Romans 8, 1, where he starts out, there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And then there's the second meaning in the world of sports, possibly was speaking of, where uh, the contestants who won were awarded with a, a white stone with their name on it, and that would serve as a ticket to a special awards banquet and other festivities. <laughs> the word new here that's translated, it's not talking about something newly acquired, new in that sense or recent, but new in that it is different in nature than anything else. So the picture here is that you are new, transformed, because you're not the same person. It is the Second Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new person. The old is gone, the new has come. That new creation. He, that's what he's saying. Turn me to Isaiah 62. There's a beautiful word here. Isaiah 62, 2 and 3 with this wonderful promise. The nations will see your righteousness and all kings your glory. You will be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will bestow. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. For following Jesus now, we may be called a lot of names. But for following Jesus, we are promised a new name. A name of affection. A name that says, you're mine. You belong to me. All right, as I wrap this up, warnings uh, from Christ to the church. Just a couple of warnings here from the passage. First, do not be surprised by temptation to compromise. Anticipate it. We are told constantly to compromise. Secondly, do not be naive in the face of temptation. 
detected. We are in spiritual warfare. The Bible's clear. And then thirdly, do not negotiate with temptation. Fight it. Like Joseph, you know, he lost his cloak and he ran. There's some temptation. Just run, quite honestly. Legend has it Martin Luther, um, the great Protestant reformer used mightily by God, he, there were times where he could just feel Satan was in the room with him. And on one occasion, I don't know if it occurred or not, but the story says that Martin Luther got so angry, he took his... In those days, he he had a quill and he had a, a ink. And, and he took his bottle of ink and he threw it against the wall and he yelled at the devil, Get out of here! Sick of you! Now, I don't know if that was true or not. But the picture here is just that he was aware there's a battle going on. That there, there was a call not to follow Christ. And there was a, also a tug in his heart to know I have a new name. I am a new creation. I am a new person in Christ. And this is from his song that we sing, Mighty Fortresses Are God. Did we in our own strength confide our striving would be losing? We're not the right man on our side. The man of God's own choosing. Dost ask who that may be? Christ Jesus, it is He. Lord, Sabbath His name from age to age the same. And He must win the battle. He has. And in Him, so shall we. Let's pray. Father... Um, every one of these churches we see ourselves the church in Pergamum Lord thank you for the gospel thank you that they held fast to the gospel they did not renounce the name of Christ as the only hope of salvation but Father they had some issues after the initial salvation after that resting hope for eternity Father, they got swayed, enticed, where their lives didn't match up with their church attendance. Father, I I just, uh, Lord, uh, you tell us, just stop that stuff. Come, Come home. Come to me. I love you. My arms are open. Let's get a new start. Let's go the right direction. Listen. Father, I, I, you know where we are today. Maybe there's someone here. and Father, they've heard about you. Maybe they even believe about you, but they haven't believed in you. There's a difference. We can believe that you are Lord of all and you died for the sins of the world, but just haven't come to that point of personal surrender where you are my Savior. You are my Lord. You are mine. Father, I pray if anyone is there, what a great day to change the pronouns to say mine. Father, speak to hearts. Uh, There's one here that needs to say, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Enter my life. Change me. What a great time to do that. For those, uh, maybe there's some here and secretly um, they're playing that game like, many in the church of Pergamon. You see, and Father, I just pray that uh, the altar open, that we would come as you call.
Father, we'd do business with you. Uh, Father, I thank you as we stand to sing. May you move among us. In Christ's name we pray.